the communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1900 hours. And you're listening to the Polo Sargero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Alrighty, folks, uh, t- for today's segment, it's going to be October 31st, Halloween. We actually have uh, the Director of Education at the Salem uh, Witch Museum out in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, Rachel uh, Christ. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, so uh, for some of our listeners, uh, maybe they, you know, this this topic interests me because I was at work one day and uh, one of my coworkers was explaining to me, "Oh, have you ever been to the the Salem Witch Museum?" And I I haven't to be honest. And then uh, so it sparked an interest in me, so that's why I kind of want to do this segment. And um, just so the the premise of my show is to kind of educate our community through interviews and kind of just have a normal conversation, kind of educate at the same time. So for some of our listeners, could you just uh, give a brief background, kind of? on yourself, what you do at the museum, and kind of just overall bio about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am, as you said, the Director of Education here at the Salem Witch Museum. Um, I've been working at the Salem Witch Museum for about four years now. I started when I was about halfway through college. Um, so I was actually, I was just general history major. I hadn't quite found my specialization yet, and I was applying for um, a job in a museum, and I was looking for just any job. I didn't know anything really about witchcraft history, just kind of general, you know, baseline information. Um, I sent out resumes to a bunch of uh, museums in the area and came in and did an interview here and loved the museum. So I ended up staying, and um, I ended up kind of finding this really interesting niche of history that just I got obsessed with, and I think that's actually a very common thing for those of us who study witchcraft history, is you just keep finding out more and more, and you just kind of can't hold back and can't stop. So when I graduated from college, um, I wasn't really quite sure what my next step was, and I came back to the museum, um, which I had been working on during school breaks and such, and they offered me the job as uh, director of education, and I've been here ever since. Um, so as director of education, I, um, I have a myriad of responsibilities, but um, the kind of big aspects of my job is I do all of the training for our staff, so I make sure that our staff are well-versed on Salem history and witchcraft history. I um, am working on updating all of our exhibits, and that's just a constant project that I think will always be a big part of this job. I do all of our educational outreach, so I work with teachers and I work with students. We do Skype in the classroom, so for teachers who can't physically get to Salem, I will Skype with their class and do a little presentation on the history of the Salem Witch Trials and so on. So um, it's definitely a really interesting job. I'm definitely never bored. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Because... Um I gained an interest in museums because uh, I went to school in D.C. for a little bit. So we, we used to go to all the Smithsonian's because they were all free. Oh, yeah. And, it, I mean, anyone who loves museums, I mean, for you know, it's great because they're all free. But, yeah. you know, if you actually read, <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and the thing is you could easily spend a day at one of them. So it's uh, trying to cover everything. You know, you don't, you know, kind of don't yeah. do it justice by, you know, spending a few hours in each of them. But, all right, cool. That gives a, a nice background. Now, um, I think some of us, you know, I know I did. We we read some books in high school about uh, the Salem witch trials, or even some literature, some poetry in general. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the actual museum, and maybe uh, what's the overall mission of the museum? Maybe some of the things that you guys put on as the museum as a whole, and kind of what today will look like for you since it's Halloween. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the most challenging aspects of teaching the Salem witch trials is that there really are not a lot of artifacts left over from the event. So the Salem Witch Trials are actually quite a short period of time. In total, you know, from the first afflictions to everyone getting out of jail, it's only about a year. So there really aren't a lot of artifacts left over from the period. So um, there's, you know, maybe a handful of things and then the court documents. So unfortunately, that means that we can't do... Um, you know, a traditional walk-through, um, you know, artifact-based museum, which is, um, you know, presents a lot of challenges because a lot of times when people are interested in learning about history or want to come to a museum, the first thing they think of is, you know, a walk-through museum where you can walk through and see all the artifacts. And we just, we 
physically do not have them. <laughs> so um, what our museum does and what the other museums in Salem that deal with the witch trials do is um, presentations that are based on the court documents. So um, we have two presentations. The first presentation takes place in a large auditorium. Um, you go in and stage sets light up to a narration that does kind of point by point what happened throughout the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. Um, and then you go into a second presentation that is a staff-guided tour, and that's more about the idea of a witch, where that came from, how it's changed and evolved over time. So... That's, you know, the European witchcraft trials and, you know, the background on how a witch hunt begins that kind of gives you, you know, all the way up to Salem and the Salem witch trials and then, you know, the formula for a witch hunt in the modern day. So the mission of our museum is to really be a voice for the innocent lives from the Salem witch trials. So we want to make sure that 300 years later those people's stories are still being told and still being you know, appreciated because witch hunts are something that aren't just relegated to 1692. You know, a witch hunt is just a pattern of human behavior. So this is something that can happen in any time, any place. And, you know, if you look at global history, they happen all the time. So, I mean, that's our main mission. Um, Halloween is definitely um, a little bit different here at the Salem Witch Museum. We obviously still have our presentations. We still have our tours. Um, but the entire city of Salem just goes completely all out for October for Halloween. So there's a lot more kind of, you know, um, fun in the air, I'd say. There's a lot of everybody's in costumes. There's, you know, pumpkins everywhere, very classic New England. Um, so it's kind of this interesting mixture that happens once a year. But it, it's fun. It's definitely a fun time. And it's an interesting opportunity to kind of mix things up in a museum. Absolutely, because it's funny because at work, uh, my coworkers always say, "Oh, you have to." Like, one of my coworkers uh, goes down to Salem on Halloween every year. That's and I, I was like, "I got, I got to do it one of these days." And uh, but that's cool. I, I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was globally. Um, which trials in general? You mentioned uh, European yeah. too. So I mean, every single society across the world has some version of a witch, whether or not they call it you know, a quote-unquote witch. It's this kind of individual who can harness supernatural powers that should be feared. Um, and you see it across all societies, but, you know, more broadly, the idea of a witch hunt, at least the way that our museum defines it, is a fear that has a trigger, so something happens and it leads to a scapegoat. So a group of people being blamed for something that isn't directly their fault. That's what a witch hunt is, and that's something that you can see you know, ubiquitously throughout world history. Um, so in our museum, we talk about witch hunts, we talk about formulas for witch hunts, um, and we focus on modern examples that people would recognize. So, for example, McCarthyism in the 1950s, the Red Scare, it's an example of a witch hunt. Um, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, that's an example of a witch hunt. So I'm trying to just, you know, refocus it in, and um, so when people leave our museum, they leave with this kind of bigger message that, again, this didn't just happen in 1692. This can happen at any time to anyone, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just like, uh, it's not like the, the Wicked Witch of the West, either. Exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a wide, wide range. You know, that's definitely part of witch history. It's something that pop culture, you know, has evolved over time. And it's, we do talk about, you know, where the stereotypical witch comes from. But again, that's why witchcraft history is so interesting, because there are just so many different pieces you can kind of dig your you know, teeth into, it's never-ending, which is, is definitely fun. Absolutely. All right, so let, let's talk a little bit about, about uh, the Salem and Salem Witch Trials uh, as a whole, because that will be the entire segment, kind of uh, do like a little lecture on it, kind of, through conversational. Uh, so let's put it into uh, perspective, kind of, for our listeners and for everyone out there. Um, the, now, the, when we talk about witch trials, we're talking about the 17th century, is that correct? Yes, yes indeed. And now, what, you know, just to kind of, Explain a little bit about what, what the life was like in the 17th century, and in, particularly uh, in Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, so that's, that's honestly a great question because, like I said, I do a lot of work with students and with teachers. And in order to really understand how a witch hunt can break out, you have to have that outside context. You don't get a lot of times people ask, why did the Salem witch trials happen? And you're, you know, kind of step back and you say, there is no one reason. It's a combination of things. 
And one of the biggest things, as I said, is witch hunts happen during times of extreme fear and extreme stress. So 17th century America is a pretty rough place to be living. So um, particularly um, if you focus in on, you know, Boston and north of Boston, this, you know, tight region, there's a lot of, you know, very stressful things happening. So to just name a couple of things, um, there's been ongoing wars with Native Americans throughout this period that are causing massive devastation. So before 1692, years prior, there's um, a war called King Philip's War, which decimates the colony. The you know amount of people who died, both on the Native American side and on the colonist sides, is um, quite shocking. So everybody is very traumatized from that. And these you know fights with Native Americans are still going on, and everybody is kind of on edge at all times that Native Americans could just show up in your town, and the fighting could come right up to you. So... Again, that's definitely very stressful. Um, on top of that, there's a smallpox outbreak in Boston. There's um, kind of economic uncertainty going on in um, various areas in Massachusetts. Um, Massachusetts Bay had lost their charter. And a charter was essentially, um, if you're a colony um, and you go, you know, obviously a colony is somewhere that's away from the mother country, you get this special charter that lays out your specific rules that are dictated by whatever your mother country is. So for us, it would have been England. So um, in the 1680s, England revokes our charter um, because they think the Puritans are getting a little bit too independent. So essentially what that meant was there are, I don't want to say no laws, but no one's really quite sure what their legal system is going to look like. And as you can imagine, that's very stressful. So if somebody does something you know, elite that would have been considered to be illegal, they're arrested, they're put in prison, and then they just have to sit in prison until a new charter is issued because they can't put you through the court systems yet because they don't know how the court system is going to work. So if you can imagine just how stressful that would be, it was really, you know... Not an ideal situation. And then this also meant that people weren't really sure if they were going to have the rights to their land taken away. So by the 1680s, Puritans have been here for a long time, and they've you know, been um, you know, working the land for generations almost up until this point. So suddenly, with no charter, it means the king could just repossess that land that you and your family have been working for decades. So again, also very stressful. So all of these things together are just producing this environment of just extreme fear, extreme tension. And then if you zoom in specifically on Salem, Salem's got its own set of problems that just make everything exponentially worse. So in 1692, in the 17th century, Salem was um, Salem Town and Salem Village, which in the 21st century is um, you know, the modern-day city of Salem and Danvers, which is our neighbor. So, but back then, it was all considered to be one thing. Um, and there's a lot of tension between the town and the village because the village wants to separate. They want their own church. They want to be their own, you know, town. They don't want to pay taxes to, um, you know, Salem town anymore. And Salem town doesn't want to let them go because, obviously, they want that tax revenue. They don't want to get smaller. Um, and this is kind of this ongoing battle. So eventually, Salem Village earns the right to have their own church and have their own minister, which was a big victory. They're still part of Salem, but they can worship a little bit closer to their homes. But then the village can't agree on who should be their minister. So in the span of about you know a decade or so, they go through four different ministers, which is absurd for this time. It was very unusual, and they just can't agree who should lead them. And again, these are Puritans, so their entire life revolves around religion, revolves around their minister and their church. So this is causing a lot of ang you know, anger amongst the various inhabitants of the village. And people are taking sides. People are starting to get um, you know, very upset with one another, and that tension is just building, building, building. And so finally, in 1692, they have this minister. His name is Samuel Paris. And it's actually in his home that the affliction starts. The first two girls start to, you know, scream and twitch and have essentially seizure-like symptoms. And they're the ones who first name people in the community as being witches. 
so that's kind of the background of what's going on in Salem. And again, you kind of just have to remember that the intense psychological pressure these people are under, it, um, you know, in a way makes sense that something like this would happen. Absolutely, absolutely. That's why I like to uh, always start, when we're talking history, I like to start from the beginning, kind of give a background on what it's yeah. like, just to put everything in perspective, and I think it helps listeners and everyone else uh, understand the topic. And uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, we're talking with um, uh, Rachel uh, Christ, who is the edu- uh, di- Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum, and we're uh, discussing the Salem Witch Trials and just trying to put everything in perspective right now. Uh, if you come, We'll be right back, and we're going to discuss more about the trials, what was considered witchcraft, how was it defined, and uh, we'll just discuss everything from A to Z. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. BCC Taunton's College 101 will be held on Thursday, November 15th from 2.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Attending students will learn how to apply to any college. They will be instructed on the college application process from start to finish. Attendees will also learn about meeting application deadlines, applying for financial aid, finding and applying for scholarships, writing the college essay, and getting college recommendations. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Today, I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. A voter registration drive was offered to juniors and seniors at Attleboro High School recently. Congressman Joe Kennedy spoke to students about the value of being informed of local issues in politics and getting involved regardless of your political party. This week on AACS, watch AHS Civic Engagement, a presentation to promote the power of your voice and the responsibility to vote. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on AACS.com. Alrighty, we're we're back in studio with uh, uh, Rachel uh, Christ, who is the director of education at the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And when today's segment is on, uh, since it's Halloween, I thought it was appropriate to have um, it on the Salem Witch Trials, is uh, having our museum locally in Massachusetts as well. Uh, so, Rachel, you discussed uh, we you put everything in a, you know, what I thought was a great way of putting everything in perspective of the 17th century, and I know. Um, you also just touched upon this as well in that um, the witch trials didn't necessarily have a specific date, but was there a specific trial uh, or, you know, what was the beginning of actually someone being accused of uh, witchcraft in, in Salem, Massachusetts? So um, the affliction starts in January. So that's when the girls first start to act strangely. Um, the actual trials themselves, so, you know, having a court date and so on, doesn't happen until June. Um, there are pre-examinations, though, that go on between January and June, where, um, you know, because there are more and more people start to act strangely and start, um, you know, exhibiting this very disturbing behavior, and people are, you know, starting to openly say witchcraft, openly say, you know, it was my slave, it was my neighbor, it was the beggar woman, these are the witches, you know, they had to do something. So they do pre-examination hearings where they arrest um, a couple of people and then they arrest, arrest more and more and they're, you know, starting to kind of deal with this on a local level, but they can't formally put anyone through the court system until June. Um, so by May, um, finally someone comes back from England with a charter. So they finally have a new charter. They finally know, you know, what their laws are going to look like. And that, you know, to some degree, it is going to take time to implement those laws. But um, Governor Phipps, who's the governor of Massachusetts during this time, kind of arranges this emergency court just to deal with the growing number of people being put in prison as witches. And he establishes the court of Oyer and Terminer, which means to hear and to determine 
and this court um, starts to deal with the witch trials cases. Gotcha. And, and you mentioned uh, the two girls uh, start to become uh, acted considered strange or behavior. What exactly was uh, that? What was the strange behavior or what everyone thought was strange behavior that they exhibited? So it's, I think the best way to describe it is almost like seizure-like symptoms. So they're screaming, they're pulling at their hair, they're throwing themselves around the room, there's bite marks appearing on their bodies, they're... Um, there are descriptions of these girls having almost enormous strength doing things that no one thought they could do, like holding a chair down onto the floor when grown men are trying to pull them aside. So things like that. So the descriptions that you read of these girls are, you know, they're shocking to us now. Um, you know, it, it kind of seems like, um, you know, they're frothing at the mouth. They're, um, you know, speaking in tongues. They're doing all of these things that just seem demonic. And there are other examples of things like this happening, um, you know, in the colony's history. Um, a couple of years before this in Boston, there had been another case where the, um, a woman was hanged for witchcraft. Um, and it was a, the Goodwin family had their kids were doing the exact same thing. were frothing, were screaming, were, you know, having basically what look, would look to us today like a seizure. And it was blamed on a woman who worked in their household who was ultimately hanged. So this wasn't, you know, completely unheard of for the Puritans. So when the girls started acting like this, they did bring in a doctor, and a doctor came and looked at them, but by the doctor's medical knowledge of the time, it made sense that it was witchcraft. A witch was the one who was doing it. Gotcha. So that, that kind of answers my next question. I was going to ask, what exactly was, uh, you know, witchcraft, or kind of what does the Salem Museum uh, like, what's their definition of witchcraft, or is it the same as it was during the 17th century, or is that a term that has changed throughout the years? It's definitely evolved over time, and I think people are actually very surprised to hear what witchcraft was in the 17th century, because the crime of witchcraft was an entirely religious crime. Um, I mean, technically in England it's being treated as a, um, you know, a uh, capital crime. They were being hanged like felons, but... It's religious in that a person was thought to be making a pact with the devil in return for magical powers. Um, and that's the idea of, you know, a witch is this person who does the absolute worst thing a person could do during this time. They, um, you know, turn their back on God and they go to the devil and they ask the devil for help and the devil gives them magic, essentially. So that's why, um, you know, the girls you know, fr like flailing around in the way that they were, the idea was is that a, the, a witch's specter, so kind of like a ghost, is attacking them and pinching them and hurting them, and they're the only ones who can see it, um, so they can report what's happening, and everyone around them is kind of just horrified. But, you know, today we wouldn't think of a witch as a person who's making a pact with the devil. We tend to think of a witch as the kind of Hollywood green skin flying on a broomstick, dancing in the moonlight-esque kind of character. And that, that's an image that comes down through folklore over, you know, centuries. But originally it's rooted in this very specific religious crime. Gotcha. So, um... Those the individuals that were acting strange in their behaviors. It not it's not that they were witches, but yet a witch was no. causing that to them. Yeah, I think that's that's part that's kind of confusing. Oftentimes, um, a lot of people think that because uh, they're called the afflicted, um, so that a lot of people I think think they're the ones that are you know doing the witchcraft. But it, in reality, they're thought to be victims. So there is kind of a crossover sometimes if someone will cross lines from being an afflicted person who's flailing and screaming and claiming a witch is hurting them, and then they get accused of witchcraft suddenly, and then suddenly they're an accused person instead of being an accused or an accuser. So it definitely gets a little bit complicated. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Now, um, something I think was interesting, too, that came to mind, it was, uh, were men ever, uh, ever either afflicted or accused as well during... Uh, this time as well? Oh, definitely both. Um, that's another part of the stereotype. We tend to think only women. But back then, um, anybody could be accused of witchcraft. Men, women, children. Children were accused. Children were executed for the crime of witchcraft. Didn't happen as often, but it definitely happened. Um, overwhelmingly, the majority of those who were accused 
intended to be women. It's something like 80-ish percent approximately um, in the history of witchcraft. Um, the, you know, big witch hunts, I think people tend to think, you know, the biggest, when they think witch hunt, they think Salem. But Salem, actually, when you compare it to Europe, was quite tame. Only 20 people were executed, which is obviously, you know, a absurd amount of people to be executed for witchcraft. But in Europe, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were being accused in specific witch outbreaks. So Salem's actually towards the end of the period where people are actively executing witch hunts. This all dies down about the 1750s. So Salem's 1692. So it's coming quite late in this period. Um, But in Europe, you see cases where um, you know, it, it is definitely an outlier, but there are certain areas where more men than women were accused and so on. Um, the reason why women tend to be accused a little bit more often than men is because it's just the nature of the people that you think are most likely to turn to the devil for help. So oftentimes, um, it's the people in the community that you find to be the most suspicious. So beggars, um, women past their childbearing years, so women who at this time essentially have no more purpose. It sounds really harsh saying it that way, but that's kind of the you know mentality during this time. Um, economically independent women, so women who had land on their own, that makes people very uncomfortable during this period. Um, older, um, kind of you know, more vocal women, so women who would yell at you, who would curse and things like that, that's very unusual for the archetypal woman during this time, so that'll get you accused of witchcraft very quickly. Um, So it's just the nature of the people who are kind of the easiest to blame tended to be um, women, and it's because they fit that kind of role of the outcasts in society a little bit easier than men. But Like I said, men do get accused as well, and there are certainly men that are outcasts as well. And during the Salem Witch Trials, um, there are men who are also the afflicted. So, um, for example, one of the first women who was accused of witchcraft, her name was Tichaba, and she was a slave in Samuel Paris's household. Her husband, whose name was John Indian, he also, uh, he became afflicted. So he became one of the people who was, you know, rolling around on the ground and screaming and claiming a witch was hurting him. And, you know, we don't have proof of this, obviously, but most likely it's because he didn't want to be accused himself, so he figures it's better to be afflicted than accused. So that's speculation, obviously, but it, it kind of seems like it would make sense. Absolutely. And uh, another thing, because I was curious, you said the majority of uh, those accused were female. Now, those that were afflicted, was there a majority female or was it male or what was that uh, percentage like if the, those that were uh, afflicted? In Salem, it was definitely more women. Um, it tended to be, it depends on where you are, but it tended to be women and it tended to be younger women. Um, so you do see older women being afflicted and so on, and you do see men being afflicted, but overwhelmingly it tended to be younger girls. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, let me just, I'm just looking at my notes because I want to make sure I cover everything. Um all right, so let's take a quick break. Uh, we're with uh, Rachel uh, Christ, who is the, the director of education at the Salem Witch Tri- uh, Salem Witch Trials <laughs> at the Salem uh, Witch Museum in Salem, Mass. And we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials, giving a basically a little history lesson through through an interview. And uh, so we're covering. We talked a little. We put the 17th century in perspective. We're talking about uh, the difference between accused and afflicted. What was actually considered witchcraft and and that the uh, fact that uh, men were actually also considered uh, accused of, of being uh, witchcraft and accused as a, a witch. So if you stick around, you'll learn a little bit more, and we'll be right back after these messages. Rhode Island College will hold their fall open house on Saturday, November 3rd from 1 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. in the Murray Center. Prospective students will have the opportunity to meet one-on-one with faculty and staff to learn about programs and student services. Students can explore Rick's campus through tours of the Quad, Fine and Performing Arts Center, Residence Halls, and the Rec Center. There will also be academic presentations and an informational presentation on admissions and financial aid. You sit down at your table, you get your card. 25 squares hold the key. Which one will it be? I-25, O-72, or Lucky B-13? Which one will be the square that makes you jump up and shout, Bingo! 
The Attleboro Elks Lodge 1014 hosts bingo each Sunday at 887 South Main Street. Open to the public, the kitchen opens at 5 p.m. with a variety of food available. Bingo starts at 6 p.m. Prizes are awarded and proceeds support Elks Charities. For further details, you can visit attleboroelks.org or you can call 508-222-5502. Remember, Elks care, Elks share. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't. Because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. It's uh, the Paul Salguero Show. We'll be here uh, from 7 to 9 o'clock. We're talking right now with Rachel Christ, who is a director of education at the Salem uh, Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And we're, today's segment is on the Salem Witch Trials. I thought it was a good uh, segment to do, given the fact that it's Halloween night. And uh, I thought our listeners may learn a thing or two with this topic. Uh, so we talked a little bit about uh, the, the 17th century uh, how it all began, the behaviors that were exhibited, the difference from accused and afflicted, and men uh, that were also, uh, you know, uh, considered um, to be witches. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um, the actual trial? How, you know, from, you know, maybe beginning to end and kind of what a trial looked like in the 17th century for these individuals? Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, um, the film Witch Trials are quite unusual in American history um, because so many people were executed for witchcraft in American history. Um, you know, so from the time that we land in Plymouth up until, um, you know, let's say the Salem Witch Trials, um, people were accused of witchcraft, people were executed for witchcraft, but it was nowhere near um, the intensity that happens in Salem. And I think that's why people talk about the Salem Witch Trials so much today. Um, because it's, it's quite unusual in American history. Um, but part of the reason why so many people did end up getting executed and um, there was so much um, you know, panic during this time is because we had a special court set up for the Salem Witch Trials that's called the Court of Oyer and Terminer. Again, with Oyer meaning to hear and Terminer meaning to determine. Um, so because Massachusetts had just gotten its brand new charter, right as the Salem Witch Trials are, you know, starting to, you know, not, not starting, but, you know, as they're kind of reaching a peak, um, the governor realized that he needed to do something. He needed to start getting these people through the court system, so he sets up this special court. Now, one of the things about this court that really is unusual, it had never happened in American history prior, was that they allow something called spectral evidence to be used. So essentially, spectral evidence was the idea of um, a witch produces a specter, which is like a ghost, that can go anywhere, essentially, and hurt people, um, so physically attack another person. Um, so that's why the afflicted girls are saying that they're pr having these bite marks and scratch marks on them. They're saying they're you know, being choked, their tongues are being pulled out of their mouths, and so on. Supposedly, all of this is happening to them through the work of a witch's Spectre. Now, that was being used as admissible evidence in a courtroom. Now, think about how awful, how shocking that would be to us today. Um, if I could walk into a courtroom and start screaming, laying on the ground, rolling around, saying, I see such and such as ghost. You can't see them, but I can. And that's how I know that person has made a pact with the devil and should be executed. Sounds ridiculous to us today, but in the court of Oyer and Terminer, that was allowed. So, and another kind of really shocking part of this, as I just kind of alluded to, is the afflicted are in the courtrooms 
screaming the entire time an examination is taking place, a trial is taking place, and it did impact the jury's decisions in certain cases. So um, a really great example is the trial of Rebecca Nurse, who is um, definitely, I think, one of the more recognizable names from the Salem Witch Trials. Um, She was this older, very well-respected member of her community. She was this matriarch of this large, um, very prosperous Puritan family. She was a full communing member of her church, which meant she had very good standing in the Puritan community. And she gets accused of witchcraft. And the girls just keep saying, it's Rebecca Nurse, it's Rebecca Nurse, it's Rebecca Nurse, to the point where they almost, they feel like they have to arrest her. So they do. And she goes into a courtroom and she has her trial. And initially, the jury pronounces that she is innocent. And then the girls react so violently to this pronouncement, they start screaming, they start flailing to the point where people are worried they're going to hurt themselves, and they are hurting themselves, um, that the jury decides to re-deliberate. So obviously you cannot do that in a court system today because of double jeopardy. So you can't retry someone after their you know, sentence has already been pronounced. But in a Puritan courtroom, the, you know, especially this specific Puritan courtroom, you could. And so the jury re-deliberates. And they come back and they ask her a couple more questions, specifically one statement that she made that they were a little unclear on. So they ask her to clarify herself, and she just stands silent. And in reality, what was happening is Rebecca Nurse was old. She was, you know, in her 70s or 80s. She was quite old during this time. She had been sick for months prior, and she had been in jail leading up to this court proceedings. So she's just exhausted. She's quite deaf at this point. She can kind of hear, but not particularly well. So they ask her a question and she just doesn't hear them and doesn't respond. So the jury takes that as admission of her guilt. They re-deliberate and they find her guilty and they execute her. So these are all very unusual things that, again, can't happen today, but in the court of Oyer and Terminer, unusual things were happening. And there was a lot of debate amongst the ministers that, um, during this time as to whether or not spectral evidence should be allowed. Um, in fact, most of the ministers in Boston felt as though it shouldn't. But people, again, it just kind of shows how afraid people were that they were letting this happen. Um, and eventually, in October, once 20 people have been executed, um, public opinion starts to turn against the trials. Um, for reasons like Rebecca Nurse is executed and many people believe she shouldn't have been, George Burroughs, who was a minister, gets executed, which was really shocking because if a minister could have made a pact with the devil, what does that mean? So, you know, people were appalled by that as well. So the, the public opinion starting to turn. Um, the Boston ministers start writing letter these, um, you know, big um, documents saying that they feel as though the trial should not go on. Um, And then to make matters just kind of tip the scale, Governor Phipps' wife is supposedly accused. Um, You know, she never goes to trial or anything like that, but um, as the story goes, Governor Phipps, you know, is kind of shocked and thinks, well, if my wife, who I know is innocent, could be accused of witchcraft, I mean, that means other innocent people may have been named by these girls as well, and he dismands the court of Oyer and Terminer. So once the court of Oyer and Terminer no longer exists, um it becomes very hard to convict someone for witchcraft. So another court is, you know, reconvened, and in January they kind of take up all of the examinations again. Um, I believe something like three or four are convicted of witchcraft, but then Governor Phipps pardons those people, overturns the ruling, and at that point nobody else is condemned to witchcraft and nobody else is executed. Gotcha. And now... um what was uh, what was the life like as uh, the afflicted? What, what was their uh, situation? You know, once someone was afflicted, you know, how were they perceived by the community, or what did they were they punished at all too? Or they definitely weren't punished, um, not formally at least. So while the trials are going on, um, the girls are you know, they become very useful because suddenly these are the people who can tell you where the witch is in the community. So uh, many speculate that the reason why so many of the afflicted were these younger girls is because, you know, these are girls in a Puritan society. So again, to step back into our 17th century history book, you have to remember the Puritans are 
extremely restrictive. You know, their lives are, um, you know, very rigorous, very pious, and especially for a young woman, you don't have a lot of, you know, outlets. That's not to say that these people are, like, completely oppressed, but, you know, being a young girl definitely would have not been particularly fun in a Puritan community. So suddenly, when adults are listening to you and your voice is important and your voice is heard, you know, that, that, is, that will never happen to you again in your life. So that's probably why so many younger girls start to feel the affliction. And whether or not it's a conscious or subconscious choice, which is something I feel like really needs to be emphasized, because I personally think at least some definitely, or it's hard to make definite statements, but I think not all, but at least some of the girls... This is not like a conscious, malevolent choice. This is something that may or may not have been happening you know, subconsciously. They start to realize that they can have their opinions heard and valued and you know, become important members of the community just for this moment. Um, so they're you know, so important that even some of the afflicted girls of Salem are brought to Andover, which is about a 40-minute drive in the modern day, so you know, by horseback or a carriage, you can imagine how much longer that would be. They're kind of almost hired out in a way to Andover to go find the witches in the Andover community. So they're so important that they start traveling. Um, And then, however, once the trials are over, it kind of leaves this, like, gap. Now, um, it's not like people believed that, um, you know, these girls were evil or anything like that once the trials had happened. There was kind of this, community-wide recognition that something had gone wrong, innocent people had died, there'd been some sort of miscarriage of justice, but whether or not that's, like, directed at the afflicted girls is up for debate. And, in fact, we actually don't know a lot about what happens to many of the afflicted girls after the trials. Um, We know a couple of things about some of them. Many of them actually had pretty awful lives after the trials, you know, had trouble marrying or had children out of wedlock or, you know, so on and so forth. But um, one particular girl who was is arguably the most important afflicted girl in the Salem Trials is Ann Putnam Jr., who I think statistically names the most people during the witch trials. Um, so she, years later, when she's a grown adult, um, you know, wants to become a full member of the Salem Village Church. And in order to become a full member, you had to make this profession of faith to your community. And in her profession of faith, she said, she apologizes for her role in the witch trials. Now, I mean, you do kind of have to take that with a grain of salt because she does say the devil made me do it. So it's not like she's, you know, taking all the responsibility. But she does say, you know, I desire to be, you know, lie in the dust and be humbled for this. I, you know, earnestly regret what happened and so on and so forth. So there is this kind of, you know, um, regret and apology, but... Um, none of the blame is really on them. It's the devil did it, the devil deceived us. So, And then we don't really know much else because, you know, there aren't a lot of records of women's lives aside from their, you know, marriages, births, and deaths. So aside from that and her profession of faith, it's kind of this really unsatisfying ending. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that the point you made when you... Those that were afflicted kind of had a voice almost, or yet they were—they mattered at that point. Which that was—that's that, interesting to think about, and it, it, it begs the question: maybe, maybe, like you said, maybe some just did it just to have that voice and importance. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that um, it, it, it is hard—you know—it's hard to make these like absolutist statements. And one of the things that always drives me crazy is when, you know, people are kind of leaving the museum or having seen the presentation kind of walk out being like, oh, well, it was just, you know, young girls who were bored and who, you know, (laughs) were just being mean. And it's definitely not that. It's, you know, it's way more complicated than that. But you definitely can't discredit how important it was that these were girls having their voices heard for the first time and the last time in their lives. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Rachel Christ, who is the uh, Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And today's segment is on the Salem Witch Trials. I figured it'd be, uh, you know, it made sense that since it's Halloween, to why not do it on the Salem uh, Witch Trials? And uh, what better person than the Director of Education at the museum? Uh, so we've talked about the 17th century, put, kind of put it in perspective overall, in, in particular uh, with Massachusetts. We described a little bit about the uh, 
you know, how it wasn't a specific date and how, you know, these a witch hunt really isn't just about, you know, like the classic, the old witch, Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, we discussed, you know, the difference from afflicted and accused. Uh, and we started to talk about the trials and, and the different evidence uh, that was actually used in them and what the afflicted went through. Uh, so we're going to take a, a quick break and then we'll... Uh, so we'll do uh, it'll be our, the home stretch and we'll uh, finish up our interview and uh, we'll discuss more maybe a specific case or and how many uh, trying to put everything into numbers too how many uh, trials actually took place and everything so stick around and we'll be right back after these messages BCC Taunton's College 101 will be held on Thursday, November 15th from 2.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Attending students will learn how to apply to any college. They will be instructed on the college application process from start to finish. Attendees will also learn about meeting application deadlines, applying for financial aid, finding and applying for scholarships, writing the college essay, and getting college recommendations. Looking to make a difference? Have extra time during the week? The Literacy Center is looking for you. By becoming a volunteer at the Literacy Center, you could help someone learn to read, study for their citizenship test, learn English, and even help them with their high school equivalency. For more information on how to volunteer or join the next tutor training, you can view our website at theliteracycenter.com or call 508-226-3603. The Literacy Center, building a better community. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi, I'd like to report a bear hug. Uh, okay. Well, before I left my campsite, I was putting out my fire, and out of nowhere, Smokey Bear showed up and hugged me? So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He likes it when people correctly put out their campfires. He's pretty big on wildfire prevention. He's just letting you know you did good with a uh, hug. He's a hugger. I just got a bear hug from Smokey Bear. <laughs> Status update! All right, I'm going to let you go now. I've got uh, a lot of uh, ranger stuff to do. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. Alrighty, folks, we're back in studio with Rachel Christ, who is the uh, Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And today's segment is on the Salem Witch Trials. So we've talked uh, a lot about uh, the 17th century, uh, how it all started, the difference between afflicted and accused. Uh, we discussed the progress, the types of evidence uh, that was actually presented at these trials. Uh, Rachel, could, could you talk, like, how many of these trials actually took place, or in, in how many... Um, individuals, if, if we do know, were actually afflicted versus accused and how many were actually convicted? Well, so approximately 150 people are accused and imprisoned. So that's, that's a number that is kind of debated. Some say a little bit more, some say a little bit less. It's definitely under 200, but that's still a lot of people to be, you know, thrown into prison in the span of, you know, just under a year. Um, in terms of how many trials are taking place, so for reference, 20 people are ultimately executed. So um, I'd say, you know, dozens more are um, as far as trials are taking place, but 150 people did need to be released from jail. So those people did need to, you know, appear in the courtroom to some degree to have the verdict made guilty or innocent. And as I said, after the um, 20 are executed, in October, the trials are brought to an end, the court is dissolved, and after that, the trials are more like, a, you know, you come in, the evidence presented, the evidence doesn't hold any weight, and you're free. Um, free to a certain degree. You did actually have to pay your jail bill, which sounds silly to us today, but they did charge you for being in jail. So you had to pay for your chains, you had to pay for your food, you had to pay for any change of clothes that you would receive from the jail. So actually, many people, when they were imprisoned, had to... Um, stay in jail because they couldn't pay their bill. So they were pronounced innocent, but um, several people did actually end up dying in prison waiting for their family to come up with enough money to get them out. So that's kind of one of those things that you don't really think about in terms of the death count, but you do need to kind of incorporate that number in. Um, so, yeah. Oh, gotcha. And um, I think we talked a little bit about these, but were there specific big cases or maybe one case that 
a famous one, maybe someone was accused and they were found innocent or vice versa, someone that a lot of them were probably innocent that were also found guilty? Oh, yes. So um, one of the interesting parts about the Salem Witch Trials is in this specific case, um, people, I think, you know, again, whether this is conscious or subconscious, um, kind of quickly on learned that if you plead guilty, you're actually probably going to live through the trials. It was only the people who pled innocent who were executed. Um, and that's because if you were deemed guilty, then they needed you. They needed you to tell, um, you know, who the other witches were, to name conspirators, and so on and so forth. And I think the popular sentiment was kind of growing that this would come to an end. This was getting ridiculous. Like, reason would return, so you could theoretically just wait it out in jail, um, which is definitely an odd part of this case. So all of those people who were executed were the ones who maintained their innocence. Um, So we talked about Rebecca Nurse, who's the older woman who was, you know, deemed innocent, and then the sentence was reversed, and she was deemed guilty, and she's ultimately executed. But I think the other really interesting case that um, tend to tends to stand out for people as the case of Giles Corey, who was pressed to death. So he's the only person who was executed by anything but hanging. Um, and the term pressed to death is quite literally exactly what it sounds. It means he was, you know, placed on the ground, there was a board placed on top of him, and then they put heavier and heavier weights on him to try to literally press an answer out of him because he refused to comply with the courts. So um, a kind of common misconception that goes with the story of Giles Corey is people think that, um, you know, he was refusing to plead innocent or guilty. You know, he just wouldn't speak. Um, That's not true. He did plead innocent. He was brought through the court system. He said, I am innocent. I am not a witch. But in the English court system, there was this kind of specific procedure you were supposed to follow where they asked you, who will you be tried by? And you were supposed to respond, by God and my country. And after that, you could, you know, be tried by the jury. Um, But Giles Corey, you know, stands up and they ask him, how will you be tried? And he just doesn't respond. And that's why they press him. So traditionally, you were given three chances to answer this question. And so Giles was asked three separate times, will you answer, you know, will you conform? And he refused. He said he maintained his silence. It's called standing mute. And ultimately, as a result, he was pressed to death. Um, another really, you know, kind of amazing part of the story is Giles was 81 years old. So he's this kind of gruff, tough, older guy who just is having none of it and will not participate. Um, now, he's definitely not a hero, and that's another kind of um, challenging aspect of this history. He tends to get, you know, made to be this fantastic guy who stood up to the system and so on, and he... You know, if we're looking at the record of his life, is not a great person. He had actually, um, about a decade prior, beaten someone to death with a stick so and kind of bribed his way out of it. So definitely not a good man. He also accused his wife of witchcraft, and then he himself was accused. So he's a problematic guy. But this kind of moment where he refuses to comply to the court is this kind of really special moment in the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so he... Um, as I said, is pressed. He ultimately, he ends up dying. And um, this is kind of seen to be one of those turning points in the Salem trials. So this happens September 19th. And then the next round of people being hanged was September 22nd. And after that, this is when you can really start to see public opinion change. People are just horrified by what's happening. The fact that they had pressed an 81-year-old man to death was even by those standards, shocking and appalling. And that had never happened in American history before. It's this very unusual kind of measure. In fact, there was even a um, years prior um, a case where some of the judges who were judges in the Salem Witch Trials were sitting on this other case, again, about a decade prior, um, for a man who was convicted of piracy. And he did the exact same thing Giles did. He refused to answer, you know, how will you plead? He stood mute, and the court in that case just ignored him and tried him anyway. And the judges, as I said, who were involved in the Salem Witch Trials, there were a couple of them who were also involved in that case. So they would have known, they would have seen that precedent, but because the Salem Witch Trials are so intense, and because you know you can kind of see public opinion starting to turn, um, you see this moment where um, it's most likely the judges 
were kind of asserting their authority and saying, you know, we are the court. You can't, you know, do this. You can't, you know, criticize us to some degree. So we're going to result to this, you know, barbaric measure. And so they do. So um, that's kind of one of the, I think, most um, memorable stories from the Salem Witch Trials in our presentation at our museum when we get to the, um, you know, part of 1692 when Giles is pressed, he, um, in our stage set, says, more weight. He's asked, you know, what do you say? And he says, more weight, which is, you know, this kind of really, um, you know, kind of heroic thing. It's kind of, you know, intense and cool to a certain degree. Um, now, if you look at actual history, there's no record of Giles Corey really saying that. That's something that's come down in popular folk tradition, so he might have, but um, according to Marilyn Roach, who's one of the top scholars on the Salem Witch Trials, it's more likely that um, that line actually comes from a poem that's written years later about a man being pressed to death in England. So that's probably where that comes from in the historical record, which I think is kind of disappointing because many of our visitors, that's the thing that they take away when they leave our presentation, the kind of more weight to that line. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it is based on, you know, folklore and all that jazz. So we don't know. He might have. Yeah, I I'd think, prefer to believe he did. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting, too, because uh, the concept you mentioned, you know, just, I kept thinking about it was, you know, if you pled guilty, you'd probably live as opposed to maintaining your innocence and ending up you know being you know, being hanged or, or or whatnot and i'm just thinking like yeah i'd probably be gone <laughs> like, <laughs> oh believe me i think all the time um i am a pretty outspoken young woman and uh at that time if i was living in period of america i probably would have been accused of witchcraft very quickly <laughs> so that thought crosses my mind all the time <laughs> absolutely and one thing i think is um interesting about museums too is and I think it would help our listeners too. You know, we hear a lot about you know all oh, the 17th century, and we're talking about these trials. Could you talk a little bit about uh, like the evidence that the museum actually, uh, like the artifacts that you guys actually look up and the documents that 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 kind of prove that what's going on in the 17th century? Yeah. So I mean, as I said, there really aren't a lot of artifacts. So mainly, what we're working with is court documents. We also have diaries and letters and books that are published around that period. So, for example, um, Cotton Mather, who's a very important minister in Boston during this time, he writes essentially the court-sanctioned, the government-sanctioned um, account of the Salem Witch Trials. So, obviously, that's a very problematic account because it's coming, it's the government-sanctioned account, so it's saying that what they did was right, um, you know, it picks a selection of cases. Um, but that's one of the challenges of history is you have to read, um, understand the bias of your source and try to pull out the pieces that are true and the pieces that are exaggerated. So you've gotten Cotton Mather's account. His father, Increase Mather, and I know those are both very silly names to us today, but these are 17th century names. Um, he also writes um, a work that's kind of supposed to summarize um, the opinion of the ministers in Boston during this time. And so he's talking more about spectral evidence and how they don't really think spectral evidence should be used, but then Cotton Mather writes his account that's saying that the court was in the right because witchcraft is at work. So, um, And then a couple of years later, you have another man whose name is um, Robert Califf, who um, is you know, very critical of both matters. He is definitely um, not on their side. He thinks that they're both abhorrent people, and he writes his account that says essentially that Cotton Mather is, um, you know, awful. They caused innocent people to be executed and so on and so forth. So you've got these different um, contemporary accounts that are books, and then you also have diaries that are being kept. Judge Sewell, who is the only judge to formally apologize for his role in the Salem Witch Trials, he keeps a diary throughout this time. So you can see um, you know, him recording, him going to and from meetings, his thoughts on certain things. Um, and then, as I said, we do have some of the court records. Unfortunately, we don't have all of them. But we have enough to see, you know, theoretically what's going on. Um, obviously they're problematic. Um, And that's, again, a big challenge for historians in general. But when you're reading the court records, this is someone else, you know, obviously writing down what happened. So 
This is someone saying, you know, this is the testimony given in court. So we don't know. Is, is that word for word what that person said? Is this a, um, you know, summary? Is this paraphrasing? You know, we don't know, but we do the best with what we can. So it's, it's enough to really piece together um, a lot of the story. And, you know, obviously historians spend their entire lives pouring over these documents, and that's why we know as much as we do. But, again, it's frustrating because when the trail of documents stops, that's when you have to just guess. So that's why we don't know what happens to the afflicted girls. And um, Tichaba, who's the first person to be accused of witchcraft, uh, or one of the first three, who was a slave, we have no idea what happens to her after the trials. We know she's sold to someone else, and then she just disappears. So we don't have a paper trail, so we don't know what happens. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that's the you know, most frustrating part about being a historian. Absolutely. I, I always like to ask uh, anyone from a museum uh, that question because uh, I think, one, it always interests me, you know, kind of the research the behind the scenes that goes into to learning everything about this. And uh, one question I want, because I remember the name of the, the book, uh, the, in high school, we read The Crucible. And how much of that is accurate or gives a, an accurate portrayal of what was actually going on in Salem? I mean, there are definitely some very fictionalized aspects of The Crucible. So Arthur Miller, who writes The Crucible, um, did do his research at the Essex Institute in Salem in the 1950s when he's writing the play. Um, So he really does capture a lot of the um, kind of big parts of the Salem Witch Trials. So, for example, the, you know main character of the crucible is john proctor who you know maintains his innocence and is ultimately hanged and it's this big dramatic moment um and that is true um and he kind of is capturing the essence of the individuals who maintained the fact that they are innocent they are not guilty and they will not be branded as a witch um so that you know uh, from that perspective, he's doing a great job, and he's really paying attention to 17th century language and so on. Um, the part of the crucible that is quite frustrating, though, is he does kind of blame a lot of it on this supposed romance that's going on between John Proctor and Abigail Williams, who's an afflicted girl. Now, in reality, John Proctor is in his 60s. Abigail Williams is 11. So there's no documentation that that romance existed in any way. Um, more likely, um, Mary Warren, who was a servant in John Proctor's house, there is like one sentence in a court document that where John Proctor refers to her as his jade, and the term jade could be interpreted as almost harlot or um, you know kind of overly sexual woman and. Um, you know, he's saying, it could be that he's saying that she is too loose and she is, you know, that's why she is a witch or something like that. Um, but it could also be interpreted as he does have some sort of romantic past with her. We just don't know. And again, it's one sentence. Um, it's literally one word that kind of changes that relationship. But Arthur Miller, you know, he doesn't use Mary Warren. He uses Abigail Williams, who's a completely different person. Um, he makes up this entire elaborate relationship between them, and that's why um, Abigail Williams starts accusing people of witchcraft, namely John Proctor's wife. So that whole kind of saucy storyline is completely fictionalized, but it makes for a really good story, and, um, you know, it keeps the Salem Witch Trials, um, the Crucible keeps it in people's minds. You know, high school students today are still reading The Crucible, so um, I think it's definitely a great book. It's a great play. It's um, excellent reading, but it does need to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm pretty sure they're still reading. Cause I, I graduated high school 2013. Oh, yeah, and, they uh, definitely are. <laughs> and that was, uh, we were reading that. So, uh, all right, so we're, we're going to be uh, start to wrap things up. Could you tell us a little bit about um, some of the programs that uh, the museum has going on right now or things that people tend to do when they're at the museum and what's going on? So we try to have um, as much educational programming as possible. So we usually do, um, you know, one for each season. Um, Most recently, we did a history of Oz night. So we did a history of the Wizard of Oz. And um, because the green-skinned witch um, actually most likely comes from the film, The Wizard of Oz, in 1939. So we did um, this kind of fun summer activity where, um, you know, uh, 
people from the community came and did a lecture on Ella Frankbaum's inspiration for the book and um, the movie and so on and how that relates to the history of witchcraft. And then we all watched, we did a screening of The Wizard of Oz, so that was fun. Um, but then we'll do other activities like in the spring for uh, Massachusetts Art Week, we did um, Colonial Crafts Night where children from the community came in and learned how, you know, Puritan children would have eaten, what they would have eaten, you know, what they would have played with. Common misconception about ch- Puritan children is that they had no fun, they had no playtime, they had, you know, no joy in their lives. And that's definitely not true. It was a restrictive community, but they did have you know, toys to some degree and some time for fun. So, you know, just kind of teaching about that. So all of that information is always up to date on our Facebook and on our website. Um, In October, we, on the 10th of October, have uh, Marilyn Roach, who is one of the notable historians on the Salem Witch Trail, coming in to do a um, discussion about Sheriff Corwin, who was the sheriff in Salem during the Salem Witch Trials and whether or not his corpse was stolen by an irate person who had been accused of witchcraft during the trials and whether or not that is true. Um, So we try to, you know, keep it rotating. Luckily, as I said, we talk about the Salem Witch Trials and just the history of witch trials in general. So there's always something new um, and new activities to kind of go along with that. Absolutely. And if someone wanted to visit the website, how could they get there? Uh, so it's www.salemwitchmuseum.com. Awesome. Oh, one more question, because uh, it's been a little trademark of uh, kind of fun thing I like to do to get to know people, and then I thought it was inter- it would thought it'd be nice to implement it into our show, is I like to ask the guests, especially when it's a historical um, topic or segment, is that if you could talk to anyone from history, and you can only ask them one question, who would you want to talk to, and what would you want to ask them? Wow, that is a very hard question. <laughs> I mean, if I'm wearing my, you know, Salem Witch Museum education director hat, I think it would probably be um, Ann Putnam Jr., who, as I said, is the afflicted girl who accuses, um, you know, the most people during the Salem Witch Trials. And it would be, you know, what happened, which is a very big question, but that's that's such the golden question, you know. Did you do this on purpose? Were your parents telling you to do it? You know, was it conscious? Was it subconscious? Was, did you feel remorse afterwards? Just kind of the big, what happened to you? And, you know, that's the, I think if I could ask anyone related to the film, which Charles, she's kind of the gal to ask. Absolutely. But, all right, Rachel, I would like to thank you again for taking your time out and uh, letting us interview you and being part of the, the show here and, and part of our segment and really trying to educate our community on on this topic. Um, is there anything else you wanted to uh, to let us know or anything you wanted to cover before we, we end it? No, I think that's pretty much it. Just anybody who's interested in learning more about the Salem Witch Trials, whether you're a teacher, a student, just an individual who's really interested in history, they just keep up with us on social media. Come in and visit us um, anytime. And, you know, if you're looking for more rigorous history, maybe not in October, but, um, you know, if you're looking for some fun Halloween, October is the best. But, you know, that's what we're here for, and that's what we love to do. All righty. Thank you so much again, Rachel. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That was uh, Rachel uh, Christ, who is the education director at the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. I hope everyone learned something here.